Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then that what you received and heard, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Sardis is a real place that existed in history and there still remains there to be seen. And at the time this letter was penned, it was written to a real body of people who were the church. Now, in Sunday school, we were talking about church as being a combination of capital C church and small c church. The small c church refers to a building like this one and a gathering of people like maybe some of the ones who are here today, meaning that they go to church but they're not the church yet. Now that probably sounds harsh, but hang in there. Because really, anytime people gather in Jesus' name, there are people among them who are sold out for Christ. They are completely committed to Christ. They have accepted his gift of grace and the salvation it brings, and they are Christians with a capital C, or the capital C church. But then there are also always people, thank God, who are hearing the word for the first time and have not yet become Christians. And so they're partaking in or participating in church with a small c. So when Jesus writes to these churches, he's writing to a similar group of people. He's writing to people who are part of the church with a capital C, who are Christians who have gathered in his name because they've been saved by his grace and they are the people of God, the body of Christ. And there are people among them who are seeking and learning, trying to be a Christian, trying to understand what it means to be a Christian. Now those people are also being addressed and in that case Sardis is referring to a body of people who gather in Jesus' name, some as full-fledged Christians and some as seeking to what it means to be a Christian. Jesus says in his passage that we just read, in his letter to Sardis, I hold you in my hand. You are mine. I hold you in my hand. You are mine. 
Please keep that in mind as you begin to hear what he says after that, which is, you look good on the outside, but I can't see that anything's going on on the inside. So first remember that he says, I hold you in my hand. If you have accepted Christ as your savior, he holds you in his hand. He holds you in his hand. But that doesn't mean that as a loving, I was going to say father, like God the Father in heaven, but Jesus, was more, he's more like a brother to us in a sense because he's invited us into God's family as his brothers and sisters, as his co-heirs, as the Apostle Paul likes to call it. So he's saying, I'm holding you in the palm of my hand, but I love you so much, I'm going to talk straight with you. Don't you like straight talk? Isn't it nice to be around people who love you enough to just tell the truth to you and not, you know, play games? I'm not much for small talk. I really am not. I, I know people say, well, I've heard you talk a lot, but when I'm talking about things I'm passionate about, I saw that. And you might be masked, but I know you were laughing when I said that. When I'm, when I'm lit up about one of my favorite topics, yeah, I can go, but I don't care for small talk, and I don't really like playing games in conversation, you know, mind games, whatever. Posturing, I can't stand that either. I really, pretentiousness, none of those things impress me. And, and it's not because I'm so great, it's just they don't. So when I read this, I hear Jesus saying, we're not gonna play games, we're not gonna mince words, we're not gonna be, you know, we're not gonna, I, I am the Lord and I'm absolutely right about this and here's what I need, need for you to know, for your own sake. You're in my hand, I have you, but I don't have all of you. I just have like a shell. I, I have that part of you that you were willing to give me, which is the part that doesn't want to die and cease to exist, the part that wants to have a life beyond death. And so when Jesus says to them, I know your works, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Well, he's just telling you the truth in love. And if you haven't remembered it, I will remind you again that this whole Walking in the Wilderness series of messages is boot camp. It's exactly what was happening to the Israelites when they wandered in the wilderness. God was getting them ready for what was coming next. And what we know is most of them didn't make it to the, what was next. My prayer is, is that we, most all of us, will make it to whatever is next. The falling away might be different, but it is a falling away nonetheless that happens when you're in the wilderness. So let me tell you a little bit about Sardis for a second. Sardis was a city, a real city, that had a citadel or a fortress that was on top of a high mountain above its various buildings and things and it was a place of worship but it was also a place of refuge and Sardis's citadel was considered impenetrable it was considered something that people with enemies uh, armies could not get into it was so impossible and yet five times at least in the history of Sardis enemies got in and took over the citadel and the common denominator was always the same negligence they got in because they were let in 
They got in because no one was vigilant and preventing them from get in, getting in, you know? I mean, obviously, if you could get in there to worship or you could get in there to defend that place, there were ways to get in, but then nobody defended those means of getting in, so the best way to conquer Sardis was just go in the front door. <laughs> and the reason that you could get in the front door was because it wasn't guarded. Now, keeping that in mind, Jesus says... I know how good you look on the outside, but I also see what's going on inside. And so he's basically describing people in the church of Sardis as being a little bit like their citadel. Looks pretty good on the outside, but it's easily disarmed by just going in the front door and letting yourself in. Remember last week when we were talking about Thyatira and it was about their lack of vigilance that they were so easily influenced by the, well, I use the analogy of the Moabite women with regard to Israel. In other words, they gave in to things that satisfied their flesh until their flesh had more control over them than the Spirit of God. And so once again, Jesus is saying, the only thing that's going to get you to stop the only way that you're going to give in to temptation is by allowing it in, by welcoming it in. You know, like, like you guys look like you get it. You talk like you get it, but you can open the door and let Satan in without batting an eyelash. And that, that's essentially what he's saying to the people here at Sardis. So thinking back to the wilderness wandering and the people who whose story is recorded in the Bible as wilderness wanderers. So we've been kind of going back and forth in this series from way back to the time of the Exodus and Book of Numbers to the future in the Book of Revelation. So we're covering the span of human history, basically, as the Bible records it. And we find that the people of God are in the wilderness when they are leaving the flesh behind and they are moving towards the promise. The people in Israel left Egyptian slavery behind, and Egypt was both a literal slaveholder and oppressor, but they were also the epitome of humanism in that time. And so these people were not only leaving behind their bondage to their slave owners, but they were leaving behind their bondage to the culture of Egypt, a secular humanist culture where people were worshipped like they were gods, where there were all sorts of pagan rites and rituals and a whole lot of devotion to the flesh. So the first thing that had to happen was for them to leave that behind. So God took them into the wilderness and said, now here's the way the new thing's going to go down. And he found out, no surprise to God, I'm sure, that they were faithless and that they were more comfortable being slaves to their flesh. And so God decided that the best thing to happen was for that whole generation of Egypt-born people to die in the wilderness and not enter into the promised land. And the ones who entered the promised land were their sons and daughters who were raised in the wilderness, who were born into the wilderness. They were in boot camp, learning how to move into hostile pagan, even satanic cultures that existed in the land of promise 
they needed to be rooted in God's authority as expressed to them through the law God gave to Moses. And they were. But a people group that was about the size of two million when they left Egypt was whittled down to something like 600,000 by the time they entered the promised land. So that ought to tell you something. Now we hear Jesus saying to the church at Sardis, and remember that the Revelation was written at the beginning and first chapter of, of Revelation, Jesus says, now John, I want you to write down everything you see. These are things that have been, that are going on now, and will be. And so the whole premise of the letters and the entire book of Revelation is, is that it's about the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. Which Jesus can do, by the way, because he exists outside of space and time. So, you know, he's got that one up on us. We're kind of linear. He's kind of all, all the time, all right? Metaphysics. So, basically, what he's saying to the church at Sardis is, you guys accepted freedom from sin and death, and I gave it to you. I have you in my hand. But you're not willing to leave Egypt behind. You're taking it with you into your future. You've become my people, like the Israelites, but you're disobedient. And you're not willing to subject yourself to my authority over your life. Disciplines, which is where we get the word disciple. So Jesus is telling them exactly the same thing that Yahweh told them through Moses back in the Exodus in the book of Numbers. You look good on the outside, but there's nothing going on on the inside. Jesus used the phrase whitewashed tombs. You might remember in the Gospels he referred to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. If you got the chance to go to Israel and you can look at pictures to your heart's content on Google or, or Bing or something, but, but you will find that on the side of the Mount of Olives and a whole lot of other places, there are lots of sun-bleached, whitewashed tombs. And they all have something in common. They're shiny and white on the outside and there's nothing but bones on the inside. Sometimes not even bones because even bones can eventually rot away. And so they're pretty on the outside dead on the inside. So this is not an uncommon phrase to hear Jesus use, and so it shouldn't surprise us that even after the resurrection and the ascension, he's still saying the same things to people. You look good on the outside, but there's nothing going on on the inside. What that means is, is that even in the church today, there are Pharisees. Even in the church today, there are people who are really good at being pretentious and presumptuous and putting on a good religious show, but in fact, there's nothing alive about their spirit. That, that, that they have given their eternity to God, but they're holding on to their temporary existence. In other words, when you receive Christ as your Savior, you know what that means, right? I really don't grow tired of telling this message because there are people who need to hear it every day. When you recognize that there is nothing about you 
that would justify God letting you into heaven when you die or preserving you for all eternity and calling you a son or a daughter. When you recognize that, you should feel duly hopeless, justifiably hopeless. You should have this deep regret that there isn't anything you can do to reconcile yourself with God for no other reason than the fact that at a brief ever so brief moment in an otherwise exemplary life, you might find yourself choosing not to obey God's will or even thinking about God's will. Can we all agree that that happens pretty much every two hours at least, right? There are times when we simply don't regard God, and that's the essence of sin. To choose my flesh over God's will is to sin. And so when we recognize that that's what sin is, then we realize we're sinners and there's not a darn thing we can do about it because if you said, God, if I can go for a whole day without sinning against you once, would you let me into heaven? He'd say, yeah, go ahead and give it a try. And we'd have to admit that we can't do it. He's too holy and too perfect. And yet his son, who became flesh like us for our sake, did it. And he even took upon himself the punishment. I think my fan is creating thunder. <laughs> so he did it. He became flesh, lived for our sake, without sin, and yet took a punishment upon himself that we deserve for our sin. And so he becomes our justification before God. Now that's a real simple thing to understand if you think in terms of, of, of a court situation. You, you've, been, you've been accused of a crime that you know you committed. You go and stand before the judge and you say, please let me off the hook. Please don't punish me. And the judge looks at you and says, why shouldn't I punish you? You said you did the, the crime, now you got to do the time, right? You know, and, and you say to the judge, because Jesus did my time for me already. He paid the penalty for my crime. And the judge says, you know, that's the only thing you could have said that would get you off the hook. You're forgiven. That is how you become a Christian. To accept that Jesus is the only justification you have for asking God not to punish you and cast you into hell. When you do that, it should be a pretty profound experience. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, everybody does it the same way. I'm just saying it should be a real paradigm shift in your life. <laughs> it should be a moment when you die to your flesh and you are born anew to the Holy Spirit. That's why we call it being born again. Now, that's what it means to be a Christian. But here's the interesting thing that brings us back to Sardis. A lot of Sardis-type Christians never get past that. That's as far as it goes. They accept what they definitely want and need, but they don't give anything back. It's not like you're giving it in exchange, but you, you accept what I can do for you, but you don't do for me out of appreciation, gratitude, thankfulness, all these words. 
out of a sense of loyalty. You know, you've seen those movies or read those stories. They're kind of comical. You know, somebody saves another person's life and then in this person's culture, that means that they have to serve you for the rest of their lives. And, you know, the poor character goes, man, if I'd known that the saving you was going to cause this, I would have said, forget it, let him drown or whatever. And it's very comical and everything. But the idea is, is that when someone saves you, you're beholding to them, right? I'm going to wager that if I saw you drowning in your swimming pool and I dove in and saved you and I revived you with my CPR and my my mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, you would probably be grateful to me. And you would feel a certain loyalty to me that would drive you to want to support me in any way you can. I think that's pretty logical, don't you? Yet, ironically, people like the ones in Sardis accept this gift of salvation that's not about the temporary life of flesh, but about eternal life, and then do nothing to show loyalty to the one who saves them. And he calls them on it. I hold you in my hand. But I have this against you. You look good on the outside, but there's nothing going, in on, going on on the inside. So I want to reassure you that the Bible is very explicit, and I invite you to use the sermon notes and the teaching notes from Sunday school to look at various passages that I've cited for you. When you make that decision to accept Christ as your Savior and to accept new life in Christ, you're saved. He holds you in his hand. But he, scripture also is very explicit about the fact that there's a judgment day when the believers are going to go to Jesus and they're going to get their report card. Just like he's given a report card to these seven churches. He's going to give you a report card. And he's going to say, you know, I was so glad when you joined the program, I was so delighted. In fact, all of heaven rejoiced the day that you accepted my grace and it became the source of your salvation and eternal life in the spirit. I was so glad and heaven rejoiced with me. And then we watched and we waited. And honestly, we just didn't see anything else happen after that. And we were sad because there was so much you could have done but you didn't. Except when you were, other, you were around other Christians. Now, you, you look pretty good around them. In fact, a lot of you, we've noticed, go to church, says Jesus and the angels, right? You go to church, and boy, when you're around those other church people, they all say you're one of the most pious individuals they've ever met. In fact, most of the people you know think you're a pretty awesome Christian, and that makes you feel really good because, well, after all, it's easier to impress people than to devote your life to impressing someone who isn't going to feed your flesh in exchange for your service. See, I'm going to quote a song here in a minute, and I was just thinking of another song by the same artist where he says, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Then he says, but I can't feed your flesh. 
I can only feed your life. So he's saying that Jesus is not here or wherever. You know, maybe you don't see him physically, but he's here. His Holy Spirit is here. And in his presence, he has no intention of feeding your flesh. He's trying to get you to stop feeding your flesh. And so what we tend to do as Christians is we have a tendency to want and need recognition for our personal holiness and our devotion to God. And, and we get so hungry for that recognition that we look for that recognition anywhere we can get it. And then we, you know, it's kind of like me and sweets. One looks good, but after I get one, then my mouth is all puckered up and ready for the whole bag, right? See, that's what happens. We embrace recognition from someone because the Lord's not going to feed our flesh. And we start getting recognition from someone, probably a church friend, and then we start to crave it. And we try to get it like an addict over and over again. And pretty soon we become a church full of whitewashed tombs. And we're all praising each other for how good we look on the outside, but we don't know what's going on on the inside. Here's something that might surprise you. I've told you how to be a Christian, but I don't know whether you are or not. Only you know. See, I can't look at you and tell whether you have made that honest genuine, repentant commitment to Christ as your Savior and Lord. I can't see that. Being a pastor doesn't make me able to see that any more than you can see it in me. You can guess pretty accurately about some people because they seem to have the right qualities, but you've got to ask yourself what qualities you're looking for in other Christians. This is why it's a really good idea not to go around pointing a finger at other Christians and saying, well, that's not very Christian, because they can turn around and say the same thing to you. So the point is, is that if you want to know what's going on inside somebody, you want to listen for indications. Remember I said listen, because if everything, if you have been paying attention, every letter Jesus writes to the churches, he ends with, let him who has ears hear. The eyes deceive you. The eyes see the whitewashed tomb, the ears hear the words that tell you what's going on inside the head and in the soul. If you're listening, you can hear who people really love and who they really serve. Jesus hears it. And what he says to those people at Sardis is, look, some of you are right on track. And I promise that when you get here, you get the white garment because you've earned it. You're going to get a good report card. And by the way, I'm, big devotion, I'm very devoted to C.S. Lewis as a teacher in my life. And C.S. Lewis makes it very clear in his teaching that, that the learning doesn't stop when you die. You know, wherever you are in your sanctification journey, which is, you know, the process of growing up in your Christian faith, if, if I'm a spiritual uh, second year college student when I die then I'm going to pick up where I left off when I'm in the Lord's presence but it's going to accelerate it's going to be like it's going to be like intensive courses <laughs> you know wherever you are it continues because you're eternal 
It's not as though the Lord says, well, now that you're dead, I can really get to work on you. He's like, man, as soon as you were born again, we started the program, but it requires a certain amount of your cooperation. So he tells the people at Sardis, if you work at it, enduring until the very end, you'll make it. He says to them, wake up. Get busy being as clean on the inside as you look on the outside. And that purification process of the inside is going to change an awful lot of what you think is important and what you talk about more. There are a couple of songs that I want to refer to right now. There's a hymn that we don't use in church very much. Courtney and I were talking about it this morning, or I mentioned it in the first service, and she agreed that there's some songs we don't do much in the hymnal because they're just hard to sing. But the words are incredible. There's a song called Awake, O Sleeper that's in our hymnal. It's number 551 in this hymnal. And listen to these words. Awake, O sleeper, rise from death, and Christ shall give you light. So learn his love, its length and breadth, its fullness, depth, and height. To us on earth he came to bring from sin and fear release, to give the Spirit's unity the very bond of peace. There is one body and one hope, one spirit and one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father of us all. Then walk in love as Christ has loved, who died that he might save. With kind and gentle hearts forgave, as God in Christ forgave. For us, Christ lived. For us, he died and conquered in the strife. Awake, arise, go forth in faith, and Christ shall give you life. The song reminds us that we're supposed to be wide awake. But if you're not sure what's really going on, then let me share some words from a Christian artist from when I was a teenager that was huge impact on my spiritual life. He says in one verse of this song, the world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you, you can't even get out of bed. Now that's hitting you right between the eyes. The world is in the dark and asleep because it's dark. But why on earth is the church, the body of Christ, asleep in the light? Well, the same way the Israelites were asleep in the light. The pillar was there day and night. It was, in fact, a pillar of cloud and fire. They just didn't see the fire except at night. But basically what God was doing was lighting their way dark, night, or day. He lit their way for them. And if they weren't paying attention to God's powerful presence in their lives, then shame on them. And this is exactly what we're supposed to be thinking right now. We don't want to be Sardis. We don't want to get a Sardis report card. We want to be people who are wide awake in the world of God's realm that is awake and alive and 
vibrant in our midst every day. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts. We are not worthy, but you make us worthy through your Holy Spirit. Transform our nature, we pray, so that we can be more than we ever thought possible and glorify you in all that we do. We pray this for Christ's namesake. Amen.